0: Hello and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, privacy in the digital age, and Richard, we come to this topic because of a case that recently came before the Supreme Court, a case called Carpenter v. United States. And it's a case that turns on the government's power to track private individual behavior without a warrant. So let's just start with the facts of this case and the underlying question that the court is being asked to decide.
1: Well, what happens is you have this fellow carpenter and he comes under suspicion in the ordinary way for being involved in a series of armed robberies of banks and similar institutions and in an effort to figure out how he can go, what happens is the government goes to the phone department and what they can do is when they uh, track a particular person on the cell phone it turns out that the signal goes through that particular station which is closest to the location of the person so if you look at the various antennas that are uh, going and sending his messages back and forth you can have a very accurate view of where the fellow happens to be at any given kind of time. It doesn't involve, not that it matters to my view, any kind of physical intrusion. What it does do is has two things about it. One is it's a tremendously, um, shall we say, accurate method of finding this information at a very low cost. And since the information is tracked with respect to everybody, it doesn't depend upon the government making some kind of special request on the part of the phone company that they do something that they do not do in the ordinary course of their business. In this particular case, and it's usually the situation, the phone company has no particular objections about lending its assistance. This information on tracking is introduced into the judicial decision. And the question is whether it's admissible, even if it had not been introduced, if it had led to them finding other information that was introduced, that other information could be tainted under a doctrine called it quite affectionately the fruit of the poisonous tree. And so the question was set up, whether or not this cell phone information was admissible or not. And the Sixth Circuit, in a strong opinion by Judge Kethledge, essentially allowed the stuff to come in. Uh, But the case has certainly been highly controversial in the Supreme Court.
0: I want to pick up on a point that you made in passing there a moment ago. You said for your purposes, it doesn't matter to you whether there's any kind of physical intrusion. Why, Why is that?
1: Well, these are not cases in which you're suing for physical damages by virtue of the intrusion. Uh, The first of the Fourth Amendment cases, uh, which took place in England in 1765, called Entick and Carrington, was a situation where somebody broke into a house under a general warrant, which says, search for anything of value, wrecked the premises, found nothing of value. Uh, So it was a trespass for physical injury. In these particular cases, we don't have that at all. What happens is you either stick a bug on the bottom of a car, which moves with the car, or you look at the phone record, and the usual dangers that are associated with trespasses in the Entick and Carrington sense are no longer there. And so then the question is whether or not the government should be able to track the movements of individuals without a warrant when it has some suspicion of what's going on. And the answer to that question is surely yes – if what the government does essentially is have a series of visual surveillances, so they watch people going first down this street and then that street. It's all the stuff that you see in the standard crime thrillers of people trying to keep tabs on them. Uh, this kind of method is unreliable. It's very expensive. And in fact, um, it could lead to all sorts of fake arguments one way or another. And so what happens is you're substituting a more efficient system of tracking for a less efficient system of tracking. And then the question is, why is it that something which is more efficient and more reliable should, uh, when it leads to uh, serious evidence of criminality be excluded from the courts, I think it should be understood perfectly well that if you track this information and it turns out to lead to a black hole, the government cannot use that information for any other purpose. It just should remain idle. So what happens is the way in which this takes place is you do this kind of tracking. If it leads to further criminal investigation, you go ahead with it, and perhaps with the prosecution. If it doesn't, then you should keep the information dark. To give you another analogy, uh, lots of people run lots of cameras over various times. Generally speaking, the key question is to make sure that nobody can see what's on those cameras unless it turns out there's reason to do so. But if it turns out that at some particular point in time, You're going to want that information. If it's not available in advance, you're going to be left in a desperate situation in an effort to try to find it.
0: To what extent have the interpretations of the Fourth Amendment changed or evolved over the years with the changes in
1: technology? Well, I mean, they clearly have to evolve in some degree, but my view is the technology for the most part is not the dominant driver. Uh, What happens is the question is the extent to which you tie uh, Fourth Amendment protections against searches and seizures to trespass against the property of a given individual. And traditionally that was often done and it led to this odd situation where somebody shines a searchlight through somebody's window but doesn't enter. Are you going to say that it's not a search because there wasn't a trespass? And I think the, the way in which you frame the question speaks to its own answer. Of course it's a search even though there's no entry. And there's a, a case called Cats Against the United States from 1967 in which what happened is the government uh, puts a wiretap outside a phone booth and it catches somebody making illegal bets. And then the question is whether or not he has, quote-unquote, a reasonable expectation of privacy, even though it turns out that there was no direct physical intrusion on the space in which he was a part. And the Supreme Court said that he does. I think that that particular decision is correct in one sense, but easily overridden in another. It's correct that I do not think that the government should be able to listen in on any conversation unless it could show something in the nature of probable cause. Uh, But in these particular cases, you're not listening in on conversations. All you're doing is trying to track the location of somebody. And then when you have enough information gathered through suspicion uh, to allow you to get a warrant upon a showing of probable cause, you should be able to get it. Uh, So the case is very different. The case that's closer um, is a case that came out of the state of Maryland. In which the question was whether Smith, the fellow who was bringing this case, could be tracked with a pen register. And a pen register is a device that the government asked the government to put, asked the telephone company to put on a phone, which will allow you to give it the numbers of the people who are calling and have been called from that number. And the Supreme Court said you have, quote unquote, no expectation of privacy with respect to the pen register, even though you have it with respect to the content of the conversation. That distinction strikes me as being really quite sensible. Um, The content information is very sensitive and can easily lead to abuse and evasion of privacy. The fact that the conversation takes place gives the government what it needs and it's much less intrusive. So in my own view, I don't much care whether or not you do this by tracking it through the telephone company or whether you put some kind of device on the bottom of a car so you could watch the way in which the uh, thing starts to move. The trespass is not what matters. What matters to my mind is the kind of information that you're getting. And I think that getting information about location is a relatively modest intrusion on privacy, which has enormous criminal advantages. And to force the police to use inefficient tracking mechanisms by watching somebody through individual surveillance basically makes it less reliable on the one hand and more expensive on the other what you do is if you run these investigations correct, uh, then you could use the Warren power to stop searches that are inappropriate if they are such. Otherwise, you let them go. So I think, in effect, that an earlier case called Jones, which said that it was improper to attach a button on the bottom of a car, which allowed you to track it through a GPS decision. They said it's a physical trespass and therefore an illicit search. My view is it was a physical trespass, but it was not an illicit search because it doesn't get you to the content of any information. It only gets you to the location of the car. We do this all the time when we leave people out on parole. You put all sorts of ankle bracelets and other devices on them so you can track them. And it seems to me that the technology that we have today, the correct result should be that you can track location and movement, but you cannot get into conversation. The latter takes a warrant. The first only takes reasonable suspicion.
0: How did the arguments in this specific case, the Carpenter case, play out before the court? Do we have a sense of what questions this case is going to turn on with the justices?
1: Yes, I I think the biggest issue that we have is people are just sort of very worried about privacy in general, and they often don't discriminate as to the sources, and you can see some of that in the argument. The other point, the most insistent question in this case came from Justice Kagan, and she kept on asking Uh, The lawyers for the government, you know, tell us why this case differs from the Jones situation where we found it was an illegal search to attach the button to the bottom of the car. And she could not find any effective reasons except the fact that it wasn't a physical trespass. But the information you got was the same way and my response to her is she's right to say that the two cases are parody. but if it makes sense to allow the tracking for the reasons that i've talked about then it makes sense to allow the button to be put on the bottom of the car so as to do it that way and i think judge kethledge when he answered these questions in the court below he began with the basic point is that the cardinal distinction in the Fourth Amendment areas between tracking motion and getting into conversation. Uh, This applies here. It applies to uh, security taps when you're trying to find out things in the FISA course about national security. What happens is the Supreme Court has a kind of a two-part test. If there's a trespass, it doesn't worry about reasonable expectations. If there are reasonable expectations, it doesn't worry about the trespass. My view is that the reasonable expectations test is the one that ought to dominate. The question is, what do we mean by reasonable expectations? It certainly can't be what you as an ordinary citizen expect the government will do or want it to do, because I can say I have the perfect expectation that nobody's ever going to follow me wherever I go, and that ought to be binding. What you have to do is to think of it in a kind of systematic way and ask yourself, do you think on balance that the combination of interests and security on the one hand and privacy on the other are going to be further advanced from behind the veil of ignorance if you allow the government to track content or if you allow the government to track location? And I think the balance is when you're tracking contact, it's very intrusive and much more likely to be abused than when you're tracking location. And so the government gets a very large amount of value information out of uh, the tracking stuff without much intrusion on privacy. And so I think they should be able to go that far and no further. Remember, we tend to forget this in the criminal cases. These guys are guilty of armed robbery. They're guilty of menacing the lives of other individuals stealing cash. You know, to start to sort of treat their privacy as though it's some kind of sacred Good is clearly a mistake. What the Constitution says is uh, that you cannot make unreasonable searches and seizures, and so the question then boils out not to whether this is a search, of course it 's a search, but whether it 's a reasonable search and I think given the net gain that you get from a systematic application of a rule which allows you to track movement but not content is in fact strong enough so as to make adversely a per se reasonableness. When you're working in this area, you really do want to get sort of bright lines so that people can know what's going on in advance. And notwithstanding the changes in technology, we know what it's one thing to look at an envelope and we know another thing to open up its content. We know it's one thing to have a pen registered to say that you've made a phone call and it's another thing to listen to it. That's the kind of rule that you can apply case after case and context after context. And it is, I think, largely resistant to changes in technology. There are earlier cases where, for example, the government arrests somebody and then incident to the arrest in a case called Riley. What they do is they open up the cell phone in order to look at the messages. I think when the Supreme Court stopped that, they were taking the correct thing. The correct thing to do when you get this device is you could keep it out of the possession of the person who owns it. Uh, But what you have to do is to sort of hold it and quarantine it. And then you have to see whether or not the information you've gleaned from the arrest is sufficient to allow you to get a warrant. And it's the same thing if you go into a dangerous premises and you discover that there's somebody there and there's lots of potential stuff that may well be relevant, what you have to do is to secure the site, get the fellow out of there, make sure that nobody could come in and alter it, and then you have to get your warrant. Uh, So basically what happens is the rule is you must always stabilize the situation so as to make sure that the evidence won't disappear or be compromised, Uh, but you cannot get to look at that evidence until you could explain to a court why it is that the information that you've gleaned is stuff that gives you probable cause. So one of the things that's wrong in this analysis is people get too breathless about technological changes. Uh, The stuff that I'm talking about applies to letters in 1780, and it applies to cellular and digital connections today. I think, in effect, that it would be a real tragedy if these fellows were able to get off on these technicalities. And I think what the government should do is to follow the first sentence in the Catholic opinion, which says if we're tracking place, We're fine if we're tracking content. It's illicit unless you can get a warrant. That's the serviceable rule that makes the Fourth Amendment work sensibly to protect people, but it doesn't, in effect, give an inexcusable barrier to public investigation. That would happen if this evidence were ruled inadmissible.
0: Let me have you engage a sort of broader question about modern libertarianism as, as we close out here. I think it's fair to say, as a general matter anyway, That one area where you tend to see a cleavage between conservatives and libertarians is in their approach to questions of privacy and surveillance, especially when it comes to security, either in the domestic context with policing or in the foreign policy context with things like terrorism. And again, I can't make this case without generalizing, but the libertarian side tends to prioritize freedom a little higher relative to security and the conservative side vice versa. Uh, What are your thoughts on how one goes about striking the right balance? Between
1: liberty and security, it's a very difficult question because you can't protect one without compromising the other. The approach that I believe in is one that I've hinted at already. It's kind of a veil of ignorance approach. If you do not know in advance whether you're the person who's about to be searched – or an individual whose life may be jeopardized if a search doesn't take place on somebody else? How would you want the balance to be advanced in order to advance your own utility? The theory is once you're behind the veil of ignorance and you don't know your ultimate position, the only thing you could do is to give an honest revelation of preferences because you both win and lose by your choices. I think, in effect... The notion that the privacy invasion in these cases, which comes from tracking your location, is relatively trivial, the danger of having your blood head blown off by a Boston massacre or something else of that sort, I think is very gay. How do we know this? Well, let me give you a couple of other instances. Uh, when we had the Boston Massacre at the Marathon some time ago, it turned out Massachusetts did not want to use cameras. And so you have these brothers who basically killed several people and Maine, many others. And the only way they were able to get them was to look at cameras from Macy's and other stores in order to track their location and move. I think it's absolutely nuts not to have those cameras in operation. What happens is you keep them there, you store the film, but you don't turn them on until there's some reason to believe that there's an incident for which they may give you information. There are ways to be metaphysical about this question and make it sound very difficult. But when you see a bomb going off and all sorts of people being bloody, you want to look at that kind of data and you want to look at it now. So I think the government should be an absolute collection of huge amounts of this information. And the key feature is to make sure that when it's collected, it can only be used for legitimate purposes and to punish seriously those people who want to do it for a lock. That is essentially the rule that we follow with respect to Pfizer today. Uh, it's always difficult to know exactly how fast you can do. Is there an emergency that justifies your short circuit in the process and so forth? All of that stuff is built into Fourth Amendment law today. Uh, There is no question that where there are so-called emergency or exigent circumstances, the police power starts to go up. So using that particular approach, I don't think these are very hard trade-offs. And I think the way in which we can understand that is to see what would happen if the government announces that it cares so much about privacy, it's just shutting down the entire intelligence aspect insofar as it relies on tracking phone calls or using cameras. I think the nation would be at a great peril, and I think most people would absolutely be very, very upset about it. In fact, looking at the compromises that take place under Pfizer and its reauthorization legislation, my own senses were a bit too solicitous of the privacy interest and not solicitous enough of the dangers to national security. This is a very different situation from the one that you constantly face where you have people in jail and then you're trying to figure out what kinds of interrogations you want to run on them. At that particular point, the individual interest becomes a lot stronger and you really have to guard against abuse by governments and interrogation. And so I think the point is to distinguish between these two cases. And if you use the same approach that I'm talking about, it will at least give you a conceptual way of thinking about the issue which you won't get if somebody starts talking about how one interest is sacred or the other one doesn't really matter at all. The reason that it's difficult is both issues matter, but you're trying to measure relative extent. Extent, And I think that the test that Catheridge announced, suitably modified, is what really drives it. The physical trespass itself is neither here nor there. What people are worried about in Fourth Amendment cases is information, and it's to the information, not the physical intrusion, that we ought to direct our intellectual and legal attention.
0: All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. Remember, you can follow Richard on Twitter. That's at Richard A. Epstein. You can read his weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting definingideas at hoover.org, and you can help us out by rating the show on iTunes. For Richard Epstein, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution.